Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to our second episode. Every month, we'll be exploring a new theme in tandem with a deep dive into our board values. For October, we're doing procurement, which we'll dig into a little deeper next episode. We liked how the theme of procurement, which in the social sense is basically purchasing goods and services from an impact-oriented business, we liked how that linked with our board value action for impact, because each of us has the power to make an impact based on our purchasing, or procurement, if you will, in our day-to-day lives. You know, we also have so many incredible stories of impact within our membership, how people saw a need, they took action, and they made this leap to do something about it. Today, we're highlighting two of those stories. But first, let's define the value action for impact. Yes. So our value is action for impact. We all measure what we care about. The ultimate purpose of social enterprise is to have a positive effect in people's lives. We elevate the measurable impact of social enterprises. Yeah, I love it. So let's get to it. Lauren, why don't you introduce our first guest? I would love to. Our next guest is Melissa Seavey. Melissa is the founder and CEO of Ethic Collective, a first-of-its-kind social venture that connects global artisan groups with conscious companies. She spent much of the last decade living and working in communities across Africa and Asia with the driving philosophy that when people have access to fair pay and consistent work, they thrive. Melissa is a founding member and former president of the Social Enterprise Alliance chapter in Utah. She also teaches international development at Brigham Young University, is an avid fruit dehydrator, and an Ironman. Melissa, just thrilled to have you join us today. Uh, you and I met through Social Enterprise Alliance mm-hmm. at, at a summit and a couple leadership events. And just as you and I got to know each other, you told me just how you started the Ethic Collective and and just the origin of this journey for you of social enterprise. So I just would love to have you share that with us today. Sure. So first off, I want to point out that this has been a 12-year journey of several different iterations to finally get to a model that's really working. So when speaking to new entrepreneurs and particularly social entrepreneurs, just knowing that I think if I would have known from the beginning how long it would actually take to get the traction I was looking for, I may not have started, but I'm so glad that I did start. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I can relate to that. And I love the fact that you use the word journey because I think that that is, that is kind of the whole point is that you, you do see something and and you begin, you know, Mm -hmm. but you know, and this journey is ongoing. It it feels like it's not ever going to end. I don't know if I'll ever get to the end of my journey, but but you still have to take the first step. Definitely. So this journey began in the summer of 2009. Uh, I had a job working for a nonprofit that was working in Uganda, and I was uh, managing college students that were doing internships uh, in community building there for the summer. And my background's in public health. So a lot of the things we were doing were focused on health, health education in the community. And one of our initiatives we were working on um, teaching about disease prevention through understanding germs and, um, you know, how diseases are spread. And so we were doing this particular class uh, in different community settings on hand washing 
and particularly hand washing with soap. And after doing a few of these, I remember the moment of coming to the realization that many of the people we were talking to could not afford soap. So kind of this, like, what are we even doing? Like here we came with this solution that we thought was a good idea, but it was not feasible. Mm. And that really made me sit back and think, okay, what people really need before we, before we can even start talking about hand washing with soap, people need jobs and they need dignified work so that they can provide these basic needs to be able to combat these other pieces of poverty. And so over the course of that summer, myself and a couple of colleagues, uh, we, we had gotten to know several women in the community a couple of them were working in our home. So this the home that we were renting with, you know, all of these American students there, um, they were cooking for us, washing clothes, and they were so excited to have four months of consistent work, like knowing that they would have work tomorrow. And, and we saw that um, many of them outside of this, it was daily pickup work. It was finding work that day to pay for, the small ingredients that you would need to pay it to feed your kids that night and, and typically one meal a day. And so having this consistent work was very exciting. Uh, but as we look towards the end of the summer, this too was going to come to an end. And so we thought, okay, what could we start that could provide these jobs for, and what it started with was seven women that we personally knew. Uh, and, People ask how we decided what the product was going to be. And I wish I could say that it was better researched or like based on a really solid foundation, but we'd seen beautiful jewelry in the local community and said, Hey, let's have this group of women make jewelry that will sell in the U S and, and we were off to the races. So we started a nonprofit. (laughs) So you ask about how we started. It was very naive. And there's a lot that we could have done that would have made our startup a couple of years a lot smoother by actually knowing what we were getting into, but we started. And so it was, it's the pros and cons of being naive enough to start and naive enough to start in ways that we really had to change over the the coming years. So that's, that's how we began. Yeah, that's awesome. What a cool story. And I'm just curious too, like at the point where you decided, okay, we're going to start a nonprofit, we're going to do this thing. Had you even heard the term social enterprise? Was that even something that was, you know, common enough to be in your vocabulary? I think I had just finished grad school before I went to Uganda and I'd taken one class that was social entrepreneurship. So it was, it was a new concept for me, but it was the semester before I went out there. So I think I was just becoming slightly familiar with that, um, with that concept. But as far as like really knowing what this means and the implications now. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. Well, and again, like, I don't know, I, it, it feels like the, even just social enterprise itself is this whole like movement and the whole thing is a journey that we're figuring it out as we go, that we have to be able to pivot quickly and, um, rapidly to keep meeting the needs of people. What so fast forward to today? Tell us a little bit about the Ethic Collective 
and the impact that you're trying to have with other people? Sure. So in the beginning, it was just this group of seven women working out of a borrowed garage in Uganda. And for the first few years, it was not only non-profitable, it was like costing us money, right? We, uh, the three of us that started it came back to jobs in the US and we were putting in money for the first probably two years each month when we come to the end of the month, we didn't make enough sales. Who's got 500 bucks to make sure that we can pay salaries this month? And as time went on, um, I actually <clears throat> went back to Uganda in 2012 and ended up, I was supposed to be there for a month and ended up canceling my flight and postponing that out for eight months. So I stayed, I stayed for eight months in Uganda without like leaving the U S with that kind of preparation. So my parents had to come move me out of my apartment, and all these things, but that's when we really, I kind of saw the, the potential. And, uh, we, we had an incredible leader that we, we connected with that she is still to this day, um, our director there. And it, it still was a couple more years that I started, I was doing this now full time, but was doing several side hustles to pay for groceries. But what we started seeing is that our products, um, so we were selling on an online marketplace and we, we had some big breaks. For example, we were contacted by the Today Show and they featured our items on this segment of gifts that give back for the holidays. And we wow. had sales in one week after that, that were more than our entire year combined. But that that peak came down back to our regular levels and it, it didn't sustain um, as yeah. we had hoped it would. And and so we were kind of back to square one of of how can we break into this market? How can we differentiate um, as, you know, jewelry that does good? And what we started seeing is uh, we had companies approach us and say, hey, we're having this women's event and we have 300 women. We'd love to buy a necklace for all of them. And, and so we'd go forward with that. And that's where we started seeing, okay, this is good for us as a business to have this consistent order. And, and especially it was good for the artisans to have like, you know, at that point it was like a full month of work for one order that they were making one of the same things rather than trying to project what customers are going to buy and holding inventory and guessing wrong and, and all those liabilities. And so that kind of cued us into this idea of of working in wholesale and working directly with companies. So that's what's brought us to our business model today with Ethic Collective. Uh, we work to, well, and additionally, uh, by getting to know the space through our this startup group in Uganda, we came to know the plight of artisans around the world and and seeing that they're very that they have similar uh, difficulties with accessing a global market. And so understanding that we um, we've created a wholesale marketplace where companies can connect with these artisan groups and where we mostly work at this point is in incorporating these products into a company's product line. And so they can actually and and in this way, we have com companies that will order 10,000 of a particular product and then 
we were able to brand it for them, customize it for them. So we are this in-between entity that works directly with the artisan group um, to work on the design. Uh, we gather the stories, the photos, the videos that we then give to the company that they can use in the promotion of this product. And um, and we've just seen our customers are really excited about it. Our, our The companies we work with, we generally completely white label everything. So you don't see Ethic Collective branded on um, on these products, we brand it for the company. And so we really make them the heroes. And that's really fun. We just can be the ninjas in the background doing this work. Um, and then our newest initiative is in corporate gifting. So creating gift boxes with items from around the world with a story. That's fantastic. Um, I'm curious as well. So this whole idea of procurement and corporate gifting and, you know, big orders that are reliable. Um, I think that's like, that's such a, a, a pivotal step for a lot of social enterprises. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we hear stories all the time of, you know, from our members of selling is hard, mm-hmm. you know, and there's so much, especially if you're doing direct to customer, you know, there are all of these marketing expenses, you know, there are all of these, you know, um, marketplace expenses and you still might only get, you know, kind of piecemeal orders. So it can be a challenge. Um, and that's something that we, that we hear sometimes. So I'm curious from your perspective, what would you tell, you know, small social enterprises, um, that are interested in getting into more of the corporate gifting space, more of the large order procurement space, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give them on kind of breaking into that market? Yeah. I mean, the number one thing is that we haven't spent to this point, we haven't spent money on marketing, to be honest. We've done, (laughs) I know we've done a few (laughs) trials just to like, see how that's going, that would go. And, and, um, so we're kind of testing it right now and it's something we're going to move into, but it's all been relationship based. And, and I think that that's wow. where B2B sales really happen is based on relationships. So, so yeah, we've, we've been able to work with people that we know within a company and then they refer us to the right person. And that's been how we have functioned for the, this first 18 months of our business. So it is, um, it's a longer timeline to uh to get a, a wholesale order right whereas uh sure yeah an individual customer you know you can close that quickly this is something that takes time and there's a lot of logistics to work out um to understand the needs of the customer and and then all of the international logistics for these large orders and how how we're actually going to get them here um but yeah i would say the number one thing is pretty much to this point almost every uh order that we've had is based in a previous relationship. Wow. So networking important, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and it, yeah. And I mean, I think that that's just one of the hardest things because you, you network with lots of people and you don't know who's going to turn out or like a year later, someone calls totally. you. So I think that's one of the, definitely one of the things that I think is a common struggle with all businesses, but especially with social enterprises that, you know, where do you spend that extra capital? Like time is a capital too. Mm-hmm. Time is a resource. And you're doing all these side hustles to make ends meet. And so you have to be protective of the other assets that you have, like your own time. Absolutely. And it's just kind of, I don't know. It's definitely like a, a little bit of see, throw everything in the wall and see what sticks. Totally. <laughs> so 
you started with seven women. You started with jewelry. You talked about having um, providing like to women's conferences. Have you continued to work primarily with women through your social enterprise? So artists and craft is is the second largest industry employing people in the developing world, second only to mm. agriculture, uh, and it's the number one industry employing women. So. It, it wow. does depend on the craft, but the majority of crafts are women, uh, it, you know, and this is traditional heritage craft that's been passed down from mother to daughter. However, um, that so typically anything to do with sewing um, and weaving is very often women's you know, in traditional societies are, is something that has been traditionally done by women. But then as we've expanded our products into woodworking, metalworking, those are very typically um, more dominated by men in these societies. And we're seeing more mi mixing between, between both of these um, as, you know, the world is broadening and, and um, kind of traditional gender, gendered work is changing. Um, but, uh, so the majority of, of our products are probably made by women. Um, but we still have a, a fair percentage, uh, made by men as well. So, uh, we, we do feel that while for sure, and we know this through studies that the biggest bang for your buck is investing in women in the developing world, but also, um, and I've kind of seen this as I've spent time in in um, developing economies that men need work as well. And that that as we can invest in both men and women, we can really have more effective tools to raise society as a whole than excluding one gender. Yeah, well, I mean, I've definitely seen it in in my space with coffee by empowering women to be coffee producers there doing things like building schools, which helps boys and girls with, so therefore mm -hmm. it helps everybody kind of thing. Just with time, it does raise everybody. Absolutely. I was curious just to know, like, you know, part of the reason why I asked that question is hearing your perspective, like we, we talk about in the U S like there's this gender gap. Um, often I think in many developing countries, it's even uh, a larger mm -hmm. gap usually, when when you think about where you want to continue to have impact with social, with the ethic collective, do you think of other ways to have impact? Or do you look at things like women's health or how, how you can continue to support um, these people through more than just the work? Yes. So that's something that we've developed over the past year. Um, and this is a pillar for our company that we really believe in is capacity building. And so we've uh, developed kind of a survey as we're onboarding groups onto our platform that we ask them. And it's not this direct way of like, if we had money for you, what would you want to spend it on? But it's, it's more what, like we'll ask one of the questions we ask is, do you have the capacity to fulfill an order of 10,000 units? If not, what's keeping you from that? What would help you be able to achieve that? Um, what are the barriers to getting to the next level uh, or asking them, what are, what are your dreams for this organization or what are your goals and what's keeping you from getting to those? And, um, over the past year, we have secured 
about eight grants for artisan groups, generally been around $5,000. And some of them, uh, this most recent one is is a little over $20,000 for a van um, that an artisan group really needed. But I'll give you an example. Um, our group, actually, so this is the group in Uganda um, that is still like our flagship group. And now uh, this over this past year, we've employed around 350 women in that group in Uganda that started with seven. Um, Oh, wow. That's yeah. Huge. And so they've really uh, become experts in clay making and making ceramic beads, uh, beads, as well as um, other items such as ornaments. And uh, they did not have a kiln on site. And so would have to f farm it out to different places around the country, especially if we had a, a large order. And so we were able to procure an um a grant for them to buy two kilns that they could run there in house. And as we did our grant report to the funding organization, it was, it was quite remarkable to see the time that it saved the money that it saved. And it allowed them to fulfill the largest order they've ever fulfilled before. And this was actually um, an order of ornaments for the holiday season last year in the middle of lockdowns. It was 160,000 ornaments, handmade ornaments. Um, oh my goodness. So we had 400 basket weavers in Rwanda making the tassels. And then they couldn't, we were planning on shipping them just by bus because it's just kind of like a 15 hour difference. They had to ship them by air. So everything became way more expensive and we lost a lot of money on that order. But, um, and then we had 300 women in Uganda working on making these clay ornaments and we were able to fulfill it. And it was incredible. And they would not have been able to ever achieve that type of volume without these kilns. And so we've done um, sewing machines for a group in Nepal, um, a, a custom dye lab for basket weavers in Rwanda. Um, and so just knowing what is their next need that would help them be able to access the market and be able to do more, more custom things and, um, offer more products and, and then run more efficiently. Wow. That's amazing. And I, I just love that you are, you know, in the community, figuring out their needs and figuring out how to build their capacity. That's really exciting. Um, in your, in your time with Ethic Collective, what is your favorite story of impact? This is one just last year. Um, we, this was actually my last international trip. I actually haven't even been on an airplane yet um, since COVID. And I was traveling quite a bit before that. So uh, the end of February, 2020, uh, I went over to Palestine where we are, we were, we just had a small order, but we were like, we need to go there. And, and it, it turned out to be a, an amazing experience. So we work with olive woodworkers in the Bethlehem area. And, and there's, there's so much meaning behind the olive tree in that area of the world. It's a symbol of peace. It's a, they plant olive trees as, as a symbol of putting down roots. And as you know, you may know the plight of um, Pal Palestinians in that area. Um, that is a, a very big struggle and a, a stress for them. And um, so we went there on a full flight and two weeks later came home on an empty flight as like countries were shutting down. So we got home 
And, um, and like I said, this was a small order of like 700 olive wood spoons. But as the year went on, we were able to do a couple of, of large orders, one of which was um, some olive wood trees uh, for a holiday promotion for a company and that were made of olive wood. And, um, and this kind of came middle of the year and understanding the, the local economy in the Holy land. Um, many of the crafters completely rely on tourists. And as you can imagine, tourism went down to zero uh, and has maintained that. And so they were at a point where workshops were shutting down and these are like, we were able to visit it. So it was like, it's a cooperative that we work with that is um, a conglomeration of small family owned workshops that, you know, they have olive wood tools in their basement or in their backyard. And it's been passed down from, for generations. And then we were hearing that they were wondering if they were going to have to shut down completely and, and change careers. And then we got, we were able to pr procure an order of 12,000 units and I just loved the the woman that is our our main um, facilitator there. She said, "It's like this order fell from the sky, and we now have work. We're going to we're going to be able to open up the workshops, and and everybody's in lockdown, but they can work from home, and so you know they're not having government bailouts. They're not having you know stimulus checks come in, and so they were able to." provide food for their families through lockdown. And so that was just like a really special, I mean, especially with the situation of 2020, um, just through facilitating this order, uh, the impact that it had on this community. Yeah. that Wow. That's amazing. I mean, and I love the perspective of, you know, we have, we're <laughs> maybe just the reality of not being able to travel. We live in our U S bubble a little bit of COVID. So it's hard to think through what COVID could be and how to deal with it in a different part of the world. So to share that lens um, is, is pretty special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned like you've been working on, you're measuring your impact mm -hmm. as an organization. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, especially when we talk about procurement as well. Like, again, there's this journey. Are we really having an impact that we think that we're having? How do we keep growing that area of impact um, as we continue to work with different people around the world. Yes. So this past year, we we started working with a third party group. Uh, they're called Evaluasi. And the, the main contact that we know, he's a professor in political science, but his, his specific focus is impact um, measurement in the social sphere. And, you know, that's typically hard to measure, but, but how to apply rigorous the, the most rigorous measurement method that we have, which is randomized control trial. And so um, we worked with them to develop a randomized control trial in Uganda. So our manager there put together a list of over 600 women that could potentially have this. And actually this is this large order of um, ornaments. And then 300 women were randomly selected to participate in that order and before before they were selected, uh, we had local survey administrators in Uganda, spoke Lugandan, 
And they would make phone calls to each of these potential women, the 600 women on the list and say, Hey, we have this survey for you. It was not connected to ethic. It wasn't connected to the organization there. It was just, we're doing this survey. If you'll take it at the end of this call, you'll receive a thousand shillings in mobile money. And so it was an economic survey that they did with all 600. And then, and then the 300 were chosen to do the order. And then we did, and then six months later did a, a follow-up with the same questions. And it was very interesting. Actually, what happened, we had another order lined up of 30,000 bracelets, but those were a lot faster and did not require all 300 women that were selected. So we had, um, we had the 300 women that could work for the first three months consistently, and then it dropped down. So then there was there was a, about a quarter of them that worked the final three months. So they had a full six months and what we didn't intend for that to happen, but what it, it showed some very, really interesting things. So those that had consistent work for three months were um, showed that they made about three times what they were making before at, at their, the work before. And these were all women that had not worked with us before. So these are new artisans that were being trained so they were making 3x what they typically would make but we saw very little to no investment in long term long term assets which is the marker of wealth building so it was kind of like they were making more money but we were not seeing an improvement in their homes in their in their ownership of assets but those that had 6 months of work there was statistically significant data that showed that they were investing in, and and these are particular markers of wealth. Uh, they were investing in cows was one of the the first ones, um, and then things like bicycles, stoves, refrigerators, and so these are stable assets that cue that that kind of have this cue of of this person is now in, able to invest in long term things, and and so that was really cool, and that and that really kind of solidified our model of, of what we're working towards. And this is our aspirational goal. At this point, we do not have consistent work for all of our artisan groups, but if we could get to that point, that's where we start seeing people be able to really like be able to move the dial in poverty. And so that was really exciting. And and these professors that we're working with, they said that very often they are doing these impact studies in um, throughout the developing world. And it's, it's not always that they see statistically significant data. And they said this was one of the most statistically significant they've seen. And so we're working with them on, on securing a, a pretty large grant so that we can do this with three other groups to see if, if the impact carries over into other cultures and countries. Um, and so that's been really exciting to actually be able to, to see how differences made and, and what are the breaking points for what makes the difference uh, in the artisans lives. That is such a just cool and inspiring story. And I think it, I think it, unfortunately, you know, in, in some of the social impact space, this impact measurement can become so overlooked because Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it takes time, it takes money. People are already, you know, strapped for, for resources. And, and, uh, but it's this, this is just kind of like, it just proves like you can't just know that what you're doing is like a good and helpful and impactful thing, you know, until you really see the data and see the numbers. And then you can really dive in and understand what these communities really need and what's making an impact. So that's really exciting. Thank you. Yeah, we were really excited. 
Well, and it's just like starting a social enterprise. A lot of what I hear too is it's the journey. Mm -hmm. Like you weren't measuring up to a certain point. So, hey, we know that this is important. We want to see truly what impact Mm -hmm. we have. Let's start. And by starting and again, taking that first step, it's now creating the opportunity to take the steps coming more and more. And, you know, I'm sure as the data shows itself, then those professors can start sharing it with their students Mm -hmm. and the students can start putting those measurements into place in, in many different or other organizations too. So, wow, Melissa, this is amazing. I'm like, I think we could talk for another hour. <laughs> <if> we, <laughs> Truly. Uh, but uh, I, I just appreciate your work and yeah, uh, you're continuing this, the same values. You're, you're, you saw a need, you did something about it and you're continuing to see a need. How do I do something about that? Here's another need. How do I do something about that? So, I think journey is the word of the interview and and you certainly have embraced it and you're helping me to continue to think about what impact I'm having in my own journey of social enterprise. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. And and social enterprise Alliance has been a big part of my journey. Mm. I was going through some big shifts within my company and, and getting people's advice at, at the conference Um, and just just being able to hear how others had been able to break through the difficulties that I was experiencing at the time. So social enterprise Alliance, I'm a fan and, and has definitely been a a big part of my journey, as we say. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) That's definitely one of the points is how do we network and share best practices and encourage one another. Yeah. And that's what we're hoping to do more of in this, in this podcast too, is to be able to share that more broadly. So great. Well, thank you so much. This has been fun. Thank you, Melissa. We'll see you. All right. See ya. What an awesome interview. So glad you all got to hear from Melissa and hear her incredible story. Definitely check out the show notes about how to connect with and learn more about the Ethic Collective. Our next guest is Hal Kadov of Thistle Farms. Hal has spent his entire career leading organizations in both the nonprofit and private sector. He is currently the CEO of Thistle Farms, a nonprofit organization based in Nashville, Tennessee, that provides women escaping trafficking, prostitution, and addiction with a second chance at life. As CEO, he has doubled the size of the organization, increased sales revenue by more than 70% in the past three years, and helped provide more than 125,000 hours of employment to women survivors this past year. So let's bring Hal into the Social Enterprise Podcast. Welcome, Hal. David and I are both huge fans of Thistle Farms, so it's an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Lauren. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so today we're talking about action for impact, which is one of SEA's core values. When considering who had a story to share about action for impact, we immediately thought of Thistle Farms. So just as we dive in, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the work that you do and the impact of this incredible organization? Sure. Well, I mean, just, uh, you know, in, in a nutshell, Thistle Farms is, is dedicated to giving women survivors of trafficking, uh, prostitution, and addiction a second chance at life. Although many women remind me that this was their first chance at life. Mm. And we do it through really three interconnected parts um, in residential communities and homes where women, you know, are provided a safe and a loving place to live and the time and the individualized supports that they need to heal. We do it through our social enterprises, through meaningful employment 
where um, survivors can gain new skills, they can earn a living wage, they can um, develop and you know save a nest egg. They have the opportunity to connect with customers and partners from around the world. And then the last way is just through a coordinated national network that now involves uh, 59 cities across the country who are replicating parts of our model. And you're just coming together to try to find new and innovative ways to deliver healing and, and hope and justice to, to women. We had a lot of moving parts here, but at the end of the day, it, it, it just boils down to one dream. And that is this world where survivors experience, you know, healing and restoration and love without judgment. That is our story. That is incredible. Such a beautiful impactful, powerful mission. Can you tell me a little bit, or can you tell us a little bit more about uh, how Thistle Farms came into being? What's that origin story like? Sure. Well, it's, it is a very, very humble origin story. And honestly, it started next year, believe it or not, it'll be our 25th anniversary, but it started when wow. Becca Stevens, who is a young Episcopal priest here in Nashville and had been working with women coming in and out of halfway houses and homeless shelters and, and, and feeding programs and just recognized that the model was broken, that this halfway house, 60, 90, 120-day program where you bring a woman in and here are all the rules and the regulations and this is how much it's going to be a week and, you know, on and on and on, that it wasn't working. You know, uh, especially for someone who is decades of trauma, a six month program is not going to do it. So Mm. Becca, she envisions, you know, what if we created a community and a sanctuary where women could live for not six months, but for two years. And during that time, 100 percent of their costs were covered. Their job was to heal. Um, And it started with with four women in one house. And then it grew to two houses and then three houses, because what was happening is the, the long term nature of the program, as well as the way it was structured to, to this day, we still don't have any authority living in the home. I mean, women live in community. They hold one another accountable. They're welcomed. Here's your key. Here's your room. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. And a lot of people said you're crazy, you know, <laughs> but, but it works. Wow. After a couple of years, though, the women were finishing and they were doing great and getting their kids back and staying clean and sober but nobody would hire them Mm. and so she recognized the need you know why are we not dealing with their needs to heal financially as well Mm. and so you know 20 years ago nobody called it a social enterprise you know the cottage industry (laughs) um making soaps and lotions in in, in a kitchen at vanderbilt university in a small chapel there and one of the things that you know we're, we knew is that the women's bodies who've been on the streets and trafficked and a life of prostitution for decades, their bodies were so abused. So what if we built uh, a company where we made body products that were as healing for the maker as they are for you, Lauren, if you, uh, wow. David, when you when you buy it? And yes, and it's just that was a really, I mean, it it sounds you know, so simple and yet it's just so beautiful and that that circle mm-hmm. and that connection between maker and customer lives on today, you know, 100 fold. And um, so over the last 20 years, we've grown from, you know, a couple of women working two afternoons a week to now we have 108 employees and 
Last year, we, you know, made over 350,000 units of product here in our manufacturing. Incredible. Yeah. What I love about that story is that it was a continuing action. You know, it was, here's this need, but then going and creating the impact and, and trying to solve for that need, right? So you took action to do that, mm-hmm. which then exposed many other needs. Like it was, how do we create the jobs? But then how do we provide the places to live? But then how do we provide ongoing jobs? You know, and it's, it's keeping going even to the need of the customer and, and truly keeping those in mind. So I think that that's what draws me in most to the story is that you're continuing to uncover actions. You're continuing to press into more services for women and you're doing it in a way that's that has an economic engine associated with it. So it's there's a sustainability component too. No, I was just gonna say, you know, radical hospitality is one of our of our core values. And whether that's the newest customer who's stumbling into our cafe or buying for the first time, or it's the woman who's just spent her first night in our house, they're always kind of given the place of honor. Um, in our work. And I think it's why we have our cafe so successful, why our customer return rate is so high, and why, quite honestly, our completion and our graduation rates. And then even looking out five years, the number of women that are still clean, sober employed, doing the deal, it's 78%. So our success rate is really high across the board. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, radical hospitality, I think, speaks uh, very well into a cafe. Everyone knows, like, I own a coffee roasting business. The people that come to us that start a coffee shop, it's about creating community, which tends to be this very, like, large umbrella statement. Everyone wants to create community. But um, I think this idea of radical hospitality very easily translates into this coffee shop type setting. So was that the seed of the idea for you guys as you did that? Like sharing, there's just something magical about sharing this drink with other people. Well, it started honestly in the residential program and welcoming women into a home with very few expectations, you know, and, and most women, it, it takes a couple of months before they even trust it. They're like, okay, there's gotta be a catch somewhere. You don't just bring me in. Don't charge a thing. You give me a weekly stipend. You take care of everything I need. They're late waiting for the catch and there is no catch, you know? And so they in turn offer that grace to customers, whether they're coming through our, our cafe or, you know, we've got a team of survivors. Part of their job is surprise and delight campaigns for customers that we may never meet or we never step foot on here, but they order religiously from us. I mean, 80% of our business is outside Tennessee. Wow. wow. So that's a lot of people that want to hope with us and dream with us and, and believe in the story. How did that happen? Cause that, that's a, that's a very surprising stat for me. Most social enterprises are, it is sharing the story, which means sharing with your local network and usually then mostly interacting with those that are in your area. How did you, how did you make that leap to this um, outside of Tennessee uh, for your customer base? Well, we've got, yeah, we've got a founder who has serious wanderlust <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and loves to stay on the road and traveled, you know, for years on a regular basis, speaking and preaching. And mostly it started off as Episcopal churches, but also, you know, women's groups around the country and word spread. But what was so impactful is that Becca, even right now, she flew out this morning and she took two graduates with her. She does not travel on her own. She is always mm-hmm. taking our survivor leaders with her 
because they're the best folks to tell the story and they're the ambassadors for, for the program. And so, and then news media picked it up and it just kind of, you know, went, went viral on zero ad budget. It was just complete word of mouth. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, it, it does make sense, though, because the story itself is so is so powerful. And the fact that the survivors are the ones telling it, that's that's really awesome. Yeah, I'll be honest. I mean, we've gotten some criticism in the past because most social enterprises and nonprofits, you keep your clients, you keep them quiet in the back room. You do not let them speak. You don't let them tell their story. You're, they're, they're just sometimes we'll make up an anonymous name for a woman and we'll call her Pat and Pat, you know. But are, and obviously we're not letting anybody out there telling their story who's not dealt with it and had clean sure. time and healing behind them that they've got the support. But people give to people, you know, and numbers numb. Yeah. But when you meet Sheila or you meet Ty or you meet any of our women, you can't not want to rejoice and hope with them. So they are they are best ambassadors. And even, you know, you if you order a box from us, first thing you're going to do when you open it up a box, no matter where you're sitting, is you're going to see a handwritten note from a survivor and, and then a mm. story to bring you into that. It's beautiful. It's so, so personal, so connected. I love that. Um, so as we're kind of thinking about this uh, action for impact theme, um, so, you know, the story of Thistle Farms is uh, there was a problem. Uh, social enterprise was created to solve that problem. And uh, now I know that, you know, Thistle Farms work has kind of become, you know, widespread. So correct me if I'm wrong, but there are a network of similar organizations around the country that have adopted the Thistle Farms model. Is that is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Yeah, right now, there are 59 cities who have adopted a residential model. Probably, I would say, six or seven who have launched social enterprises. Wow, that's amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about that story of, you know, how did Thistle Farms begin to replicate their model across the country? Well, there was def- there was nothing strategic or intentional about it. Cool. <laughs> there. Um, awesome. People were, were calling and they were hearing Becca speak, you know, or um, reading a story about it. I would say, hey we need one of those in Indianapolis or in Tampa yeah. or in Charlotte or Atlanta, you know? So we started opening up the organization and hosting education workshops where people could come and spend a day or two days to just experience everything. Thistle farms. Um, and then they, they just kept filling up and filling up and people kept coming and then they would go back and they would start a program and then they'd be calling us saying, okay, now what? So we ended up, you know, we now have a national network team, but that's all they do is work with inquiries as well as support startups. Um, and, you know, it's, it's um, they're all their own independent 501c3. We're not managing them. Um, we simply give them the playbook that they need to get started. And we are here to answer questions to make sure they don't make all the mistakes that we made. And, and provide wow. um, sources of support. It's also lately been a godsend because we have such a long waiting list with over 100 women on that list. And um, wow. we're now, we're um, every month, we're referring women to sister orgs across the country and helping them get transportation and, and, and get a bed in another, another sister program. Wow. That's, wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, well, you know, again, it, 
it, it definitely just keeps going with this theme of action for impact here. You continue, you didn't have the plan, but it was still just this uh, need that you continue to see. And you keep asking the question, how do we take action? How do we have this impact? Um, how we've been just a little bit further down the road than others. So let's help other people along the way. And I think a lot of it is, you know, most nonprofits are so risk averse. Mm. And so, you know, but I'm kind of like, no guts, no glory. Let's try it. And <laughs> what's the worst things that's going to happen? And, you know, we've, we've, we've opened ventures that failed and then we've opened ventures that were, you know, hugely successful. So you just, you have to be willing to try. Yeah. Wow. Well, what's, where's, Where's his Thistle Farms headed next? I mean, it could be more of the same, right? Or, or do you have other actions and impact that you envision for the future? Well, a couple of things. Um, I mean, number one, we are, our social enterprise is continuing to just get stronger and stronger. Our margins are getting better. Online sales were up sixty nine percent last year. Wow. The customer return rate is forty percent, and so I am leaning in hard. And in a couple of months, we'll go from 10,000 square feet to 28,000 square feet of manufacturing and production space so that we can expand our, our product line. Amazing. Um, corporate gifting has become a, 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 an important part of our business, so it'll allow us to offer a lot more gift options. So um, leaning in hard on the enterprise and we're hiring women, not just from Thistle Farms, but other recovery programs around Nashville as well. So I love that. We also okay. are... Um, are expanding our residential footprint. We haven't grown that in a long time. And next year we'll open one new home. And then we've purchased two small apartment buildings that we'll be opening up. We've opened this last couple of months, uh, an office in Washington, DC, where we are going to be really going in a lot deeper than we ever have with public policy and advocacy. We have, that's a space we've kind of stayed out of. Um, but to be quite honest with you, when people raise their hand and say, how can I help? I want to be able to do more than say buy our soap because there's a lot of opportunities to help influence practices and policies that impact women who are caught in a web of trafficking and addiction. And so we've got a new director of advocacy and public policy now in DC and we have some big plans for that office. So I could keep going on and on. There's so much going on. And then we tie in our 25th anniversary to it. And there's a lot. Oh, when is that? When is that? Such a big deal. Well, we're just, we're going to do the whole year. I mean, we're going to. Next year? 2022. Yeah. 2022 is our 25th anniversary. and We've got a year long calendar. Oh, very cool. New special product releases and all kinds of stuff. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back on next year to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Thank you. I'd love to. Definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Hal. Before we uh, before we close, I did have one last question. Um, it was something you said at kind of the beginning of the interview that many of these women say to you, "This is my this isn't my second chance. This is my first chance." Can you share a little bit more about about what you see, what that means? Well, I see. You know, poverty is the, is the number one trafficker in the country, and yeah. for women who were 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 born into neighborhoods and homes where addiction and abuse and molestation and incest and failing schools, and I could go on and on and on, they didn't have a first chance. Yeah. And so um, when they when they get here and, and they are offered unconditional love and opportunities that we all grew up with and probably took for granted, 
that does represent a first chance. Now, doing that while trying to, to run a, that's a profitable, <laughs> sustainable enterprise and you know, be a great place to work and all of that. I mean, it's hard. This work is not easy. And we have so many people coming through here who want to go back and they want to start a residence and a social enterprise. And like, no, 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 no. Baby steps. you got to go slow. They can't help but want to get excited and hope with us when we, when we see it. Absolutely, yeah. The the story of, of hope and it's 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 powerful and it really inspires. You know, it it's it, yeah, it's beautiful and it's just incredible to hear about the impact that the Farm has and will continue to have. And we're just so we're so thrilled to get to have had this conversation with you today, Hal. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Let's do it again. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> Well, Lauren, before we began the day, um, selfishly, Hal and Melissa were two of my favorite people that I've met through my time with Social Enterprise Alliance. Uh, I got to say that they're even more my favorite people. (laughs) (laughs) I learned an awful lot, and I think that both of them give me inspiration to uh, keep going, to keep working towards my social impact. What did you walk away from? Yeah. Wow. Well, first of all, yeah. Really incredible people with a lot of experience and insight, and that was really awesome to kind of take a deeper dive into. Uh, for me, I think one of the things that stood out that was a commonality between the two stories was that each organization kind of had, you know, humble beginnings, um, and they've spent a lot of time and effort figuring out how to increase their impact in a way that was sustainable and meaningful and you know that involved just a lot of learnings and and you know making mistakes and as as they said failing forward i think it's really awesome when talking about action for impact to just kind of note that in these stories we see examples of social enterprises that not only took that first step to start building something, which is a very, very hard step to take, uh, but furthermore, continued to define and refine their business model and their mission and to figure out what was working, what was not working, how they could improve. And, uh, you know, I think that's honestly maybe even harder than just initially taking that first step because approaching something like the possibility of failure and embracing it is really challenging and being able to take those those you know mistakes and learn from them to continue to increase the impact that you're having on the on the people that and the communities that you're serving I think that's really admirable. So action isn't just, you know, a one-time thing, it's a continuous process and I think that, that was really evident in these stories. Yeah. I think you're spot on. The, the first step is an incredibly hard step to take, but the perseverance is, it's almost like each step gets a little bit harder. Mm. But that, that also brings back to, you know, the point of the podcast is like, hopefully by hearing these stories, you're encouraged to keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. You've, you've seen people that have been able to break through and, and to be guides. And I know that seems kind of small, but taking a moment to, to listen to the podcast, to listen to these stories is a version of action to learn how someone else failed forward and then apply that wisdom to whatever you're working on. So, you know, I think that action can, can look like many different forms and, and ultimately 
that's the goal of the podcast. That's the goal of SEA is to share all this wisdom, share the encouragement and um, share the best practices so that we can continue to keep taking action and continue to keep deepening our impact. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just a couple quick notes as we wrap up for the day. Um, we want to let you know just what you can expect from us. So every month we'll have two episodes of the podcast around a monthly theme. So like we talked about earlier today, with the month of October is the theme of procurement. So we'll get more into the nitty gritty of procurement uh, next week. We're also looking for sponsors for each month. So if you've always dreamed of sponsoring a podcast, now's your chance. Um, you can let us know of your interest in, at info at socialenterprise.us. Also, if you have a product or a service that you would like to promote on the show, let us know. And finally, we just want to let you know about a program that we've recently launched in the last few months at SCA called Affinity Groups. We're really excited about this program. It just allows members to connect with one another based on all different kinds of topics, uh, industries that they work in, geographic areas, etc. Um, so one that I think ties in really nicely with today's episode is our Impact and Data Affinity Group. This group is perfect for anyone who is interested in learning more about how to measure your impact. As Melissa was talking about today, it's really important to have that data so that you're able to know what you're doing well and what you might need to work on improving. And being able to see data backing up programs that you're running, um, services that you're providing, to see the actual numbers of the impact you're having in your community is really important and really essential. Yep. Perfect for the theme of Action for Impact. Well, join us again uh, for the next episode. It's going to be amazing. And we'll keep going into procurement and how we can each deepen our impact. So thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Dave. And we'll see you all next time.